Hello and welcome to another edition of the 42 Courses podcast. Uh, this week, Jake Courage, uh, who's my best friend and co-founder of 42 Courses, chats to Christian Hunt. He's a brilliant chap. He's the founder of the Human Risk Company and the podcast of the same name. Christian studies the idea that human decision making can cause many problems. It often causes people to take risks they shouldn't, but also helps people to do more of the things they probably should. In his podcast, Christian talks to people about the things they've learned from taking these risks in their own lives. And he's spoken to some people that you may already know, like Rory Sutherland, but also to very interesting people like sexologists, comedians, millionaires, singers, and many more, discussing where things have gone wrong and what lessons can be learned from them. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Uh, we enjoyed it so much, we decided to make another one right after it. So next week's edition will be a second podcast with Christian on a slightly different topic. But hope you enjoy. First things first is to say, Christian, it's a real pleasure to have you with us today, and, and thank you so much for joining. Uh, we're a massive fan of your your podcast, the Human Risk Podcast. Um, and for those that haven't had the pleasure of of listening to it before, um, I just wondered if you wouldn't mind explaining a little bit about what it's what it's about. Sure. So, uh, look, lovely to be here. Thank you for the the invitation. I specialize in this topic called human risk which is really the idea that human decision making can do you know cause huge amounts of problems for us and we recognize that in the world you'd have to look too far from uh, from where either of us are sitting to recognize that human decision making can cause problems and so i define human risk really loosely as the risk of people doing things they shouldn't or not doing things they should recognizing that covers everything from I'm deliberately setting out to do something wrong to I don't even know I've made a mistake and it happened because I was a bit tired. And so looking at the totality of all of which can cause problems. And so that's my, my sort of area of specialism. And, and what the podcast does is basically tries to explore that. So who can help us understand that? Well, the answer is firstly, people that have experienced human risk themselves. So if I can find people that are brave enough to come on the show to talk about when something went wrong in their lives or not the way they're expecting or an experience that, they, that they've had uh, where maybe other people have, have done something that's influenced them. Uh, I talk to academics, a lot of behavioral science, psychology academics who can really help us understand what they're discovering about why we do these things. And then, and then the real sort of focus of my my work and, and and also the podcast is really well, what can we do about this? And so, what I then also talk mm -hmm. to is practitioners, so everything from behavioural scientists, compliance officers, uh, you know, interesting people who are out there trying to influence human behaviour to get a particular outcome, to stop, if you like, mitigate human risk. And so, the podcast really is quite it's quite eclectic. So, I've had everybody from uh, Rory Sutherland. I know your listeners will know. Uh, who compared compliance, which is sort of the 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 banner that a lot of these activities that that you know I'm I'm, I'm looking at are, are done under as a sort of negative advertising. So advertisers trying to get people to do stuff. His view was compliance is trying to get people not to do stuff, but it's the same. It's the same thing. You're trying to influence human decision making. I've had a sexologist on there who has uh, talked about you know what we can learn from promoting safe sex in relation to getting people to wear masks. I've had a multi-million singer who talked about uh, human risk in the music industry. So a whole eclectic mix of people that I just try and see what we can learn from. I mean, you, you had me there with sex and Rory Sutherland. Um, who, who wouldn't want to listen to those two topics? Um, yeah, to, to, be, to be clear, that's not a topic your... I discuss hugely with Rory, but um, there, may, there may be some elements <laughs> of it that certain-minded people could infer. I, I, I can imagine. Um, 
one of the words that sort of stood out in your your intro there was was kind of psychology and you know it kind of fascinates me that you know inherently as human beings we're such poor judges of risk and why why is that what is the kind of psychology behind why we kind of expose ourselves to risk um could could you uh, tell us a bit about that yeah, I, look, I think it's really fascinating because on the one hand, you would go, "Why well, we're really stupid, right? We all do dumb stuff on a daily, in my case, hourly basis. There's something I kind of go, we should have done it slightly differently, right? Or, 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 you know, I leave stuff not done. And and so you look at it and you just go, we're really rubbish. It's amazing the species has survived this long with the propensity to do things mm-hmm. that are unhelpful or not do the things that we need, we need to do. On the other hand, it's precisely that, actually, that I think is interesting, which is part of the reason that we really stuff things up is that we're not programmed for the world that we're in. We've kind of evolved with mechanisms and brain processes that are designed for a very different world. And if you look at things like flying and, and, and the internet, uh, mm-hmm. are great examples of things that, that promote dynamics the human body wasn't designed for. Why, why do we get jet lag? Well, the answer is we haven't evolved to be able to suddenly transplant ourselves halfway across the world. Equally, if you look at the internet, we've not evolved to be able to take on board the massive information that's out there and so our brains just can't cope with some of these things. So there's always been this sense of people doing silly things. You have to go back to the Bible. You can read about people doing things that they shouldn't do, not doing things that they should. So it's a human trait. But I think it's brought out particularly badly in the 21st century because the way that our brains operate is designed for a much simpler world where we we kind of know our environment. We're not traveling too far from it. We recognize people. Anybody that we came across that looked or seemed different, we would have to size up. Nowadays, we come into contact with tons of people with different backgrounds and experiences. So sort of working out what they're about is quite a big challenge for our very <laughs> tiny brains. And so I think it's not a case of that we're idiots because clearly the species has survived, but it's a case of we haven't evolved to handle some of the stuff. And I think it's fascinating when you look at things like critical thinking is that, you know, part of the reason that we have kind of misinformation and disinformation being so prevalent is that there's lots of people out there who are just taking what they're told at face value. And that works in a society where you know everybody, you trust everybody, and there's no nefarious thing. And you could generally tell if someone was trying to leg you over way back when. Nowadays, you know, you can pretend to be someone you're not. And so I think it's a much mm-hmm. harder landscape. And we're not teaching people the skills that they need to be able to navigate this stuff. Mm-hmm. Many people aren't taught critical thinking. You know, we are taught, and mm-hmm. I love that, I go on a sort of Rory-esque rant about this stuff. You look, go back to education. How do we teach people? We teach people in a linear fashion about theoretical subjects. Mm-hmm. So we teach people about mm-hmm. physics. We teach them about chemistry. We teach them about history. We teach them about geography, right? These linear things as if the world operated on that basis. It doesn't, right? We we are, every single moment of our lives, physics plays a part, chemistry plays a part, history plays a part, geography. And yet we've been taught these things in separate silos. And so when I look at the education mm-hmm. system, I go, I think that's partly responsible because we, we're teaching people things in very siloed ways. And we're teaching people things that aren't relevant and aren't useful. I mean, who needs to memorize the list of, of you know, kings of England from way back when? You know, what's relevant is why is stuff happening today? What's going on? How can I never, how can I interrogate what's going on around me and intelligently respond to it? And I think you know, we need to start teaching people these things so that they can handle those particular situations and recognize the dynamics that we're in at the moment are not the dynamics that our brains are necessarily programmed for or attuned to. And of course, the problem's getting worse because technology and developments and things are happening so much more quickly. I mean, take COVID as a really good example. You know, we're just not equipped for handling these sorts of things in a fast moving world. And that's the bit that's got to shift. And we need to build, you know, I look at building processes that recognize that 
and stop trying to pretend that we can be perfect and actually go, how can we design a world around the fact that we're going to get things wrong? So let's make sure that people don't get the really critical things wrong. And when they do make mistakes, that it's in the stuff that really doesn't matter quite so much. No, I mean, 100% agree. I think kind of that idea of evolutionary mismatch comes up so often, doesn't it, that we kind of were designed for a much more simple world than the one that we live in now. And I guess that's what, you know, this whole idea of human risk is about. And I suppose, you know, if you are the average person on the street, what are some of the ways you can kind of best mitigate your own risk or, or personal risk in, in terms of what you've learned from your journey so far learning about this topic? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think the, the most obvious you know, examples of these things is is with with anything where you're trying to change a habit or trying to is being aware of it, being aware that there's a problem is goes a long way. Because if you just kid yourself and you go, I'm really smart. And to be very clear, you know, human risk isn't about intelligent people don't make human, whereas unintelligent people do. Also, it's got nothing to do with with kind of traditional intelligence. It's we all screw things up. And you might actually say the more intelligent you are, there's a greater risk in some respect of messing things up. So the first bit is to recognize, to be self-aware enough to recognize that you're human and that you too suffer from the things that, that we all suffer from. And, and if you take that start point, that's a really good opener because then you'll start to go, well, where might I be wrong about things? And I think there's, there's a heck of a lot of people like certainty. People like to know that they've got things right. They make their mind up about something. And then they proceed on that basis, right? It's a really smart, in, in, in a world that's not changing and you've got reliable sources, it's a pretty good strategy. Nowadays, there's a lot more reasons why that might not be the smartest thing. Now, you don't want to be second guessing every single decision, but there are when you're making big decisions, it's worth worth kind of thinking about that. So I like to look at structures that facilitate that, that make it easier. The, the, the first one of those is quite simple, which is try and buy yourself more time. I mean, literally, and, and, and I love the fact you can go over to way back when, and there's brilliant phrases that really summarize. So this is part of the human condition. So if you think about the phrase sleeping on it, right? That, that mm. comes from the idea that a good night's sleep might help you see things a little bit differently. And, and I think that still applies nowadays. So we get rushed into things, very you know, quick snap decisions, because we can take those or because we there's a, there's a natural expectation of society that, that we will. And there's some lovely interventions that we've seen the government do. So really good examples. If you try and get a, a mortgage or certain financial services products, there's a cooling off period which recognizes that mm. you might not have done the prep work or the thinking before you sign it. So insurance is a good example. You have 14 days in which to change your mind about something. Now, you can't make a claim during that period, not, but if you haven't made a claim, you can change your mind. And that recognizes that it's really difficult for the government to intervene beforehand to say you're about, because you might not even think you're buying insurance. You know, you might be buying a new product and they offer mm -hmm. you some sort of warranty. Well, that's a form of insurance. So they create this mm -hmm. piece in law that basically recognizes people won't necessarily have the opportunity to think beforehand. So let's buy them that opportunity to kind of effectively sleep on it afterwards. And I think that's a really good example of a positive mm -hmm. regulation that we can also apply in our own lives where don't make, you know, don't go food shopping on an empty stomach, right? It's a well-known adage. Do I do that all the time? Absolutely. Very frequently, right? But it's mm -hmm. don't go food shopping on an empty stomach purely because you'll buy more food than you actually need because you're being heavily influenced by that dynamic of feeling hungry. And I think the same thing is true. It's if you're feeling rushed and you're making a big decision, and, and maybe that's a big decision financially, maybe it's a big decision strategically, just think a little bit and buy yourself that extra time to think. And I think very often we now think we need to respond quickly, you know, ditto if I'm angry with someone, if I if I immediately flash an email out or a tweet or something, then it's probably going to be ill-considered. 
And so I think time is hugely mm. on our side. The more time we spend thinking about things, generally, there are some exceptions, generally we'll come up with a better decision than we might have done. So slowing things down, I think, is incredibly powerful because it stops that hot-headedness, getting caught up in the moment mm. type, type piece. I think that the, the, the second thing is it's, it's always worth reflecting on your own fallacies and mistakes. And I think we have this narrative in the world nowadays where sort of, you know, no one makes mistakes. And you can see this in politicians. You know, how many mistakes has Donald Trump made? Answer if you ask him, zero. If you were to ask other slightly right. less committed people, quite a few. Right? And, and what I think is interesting is that there is this narrative out there that is, is, you know, smart people don't make mistakes. It's only idiots that make mistakes. Whereas, of course, the converse is true. Is, is one of the things that's mm. interesting is, is as a species, we evolve through trial and error. We experiment, we try stuff out, we see what happens. Now, you, trial and error leads to innovation, but it's the and error bit that's critical. We will make mistakes, and sometimes mistakes can produce amazing serendipitous outcomes. You know, penicillin's a really good example. Actually, even, even the COVID vaccine, mm. there was some story where they, 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 mm. they left something, they made some mistake that developed, that, that got something slightly, oh, it was the dosage, that's right. So the dosage, they, they, they underdosed right. and discovered that was more powerful than overdose. That wouldn't have been something you probably have planned yeah. for. Great example of mistake leading to good thing. Tons of examples of mistake leading to bad things. But I think it's really worth reflecting on our own decision-making. And rather than sitting there and going, I'm not going to look at the things that went wrong, it's almost to make a thing of it mm -hmm. and just go, okay, when have I, almost like when have I screwed up and what can I learn from that particular piece? And I think that's quite a positive reinforcing thing because if we're constantly making the same mistakes, then it's the old Einstein thing about, you know, you, you do the same thing and expect the same results, right? Is, is change the way you do things, change the processes, and you'll change the outcome. And so I think all of these mm -hmm. things point towards reflecting on why we've done stuff. So I quite like to look back and go, why did things, why did things not work out? Here's another thing that's interesting. though: When people go look back on things, they always look back on things that went wrong. We tend to investigate errors. Mm -hmm. We never investigate success. And so one of the other things I think is really important is to go, sometimes we get lucky and things just fall in our lap, not through any skill whatsoever, but just complete fluke. You know, we happen to meet the right person, mm. nothing to do with, we sign a great bit of business, nothing to do with the fact that we're fantastic. We just literally serendipity worked in our favor. I think it's really important to recognize mm. those things as well and go back and say, okay, why was I successful there? And not to conclude that the reason that I was successful in that particular instance is because I'm amazing. Uh, equally, the reason you screwed up might not be because you're an idiot. It might be, there's a whole fa set of factors. And if you can understand those, then you can start to at least give mm. yourself a better chance of getting it right. And for me, that's quite that's quite mm -hmm. an interesting piece because you know people often go, "What's the winning formula?" Uh, and that's why we re we love reading autobiographies of successful people, and we listen to interviews with successful people and go, "What is the secret?" Even the phrase "secret of my success," right? Like there is some kind of mm. hidden thing where you can go, "If I could tap into a bit of that." Right. Now, there is some things we can learn from those people. Of course, it's the losers that don't get to write autobiographies, possibly the people with the most interesting stories to tell that we never get to see. But, but you know, thinking around these particular, I think is fascinating because if we really want to be successful, then being humble and recognizing when that's down to us, when that's down to circumstance, uh, you know, is, is a great way of looking at particular situations. So I like to review what has happened, and it's a great time to do that at the end of the year, particularly at the end of a challenging year, to look at things and go, well, what happened? Why did things go well? Why did things go badly? Recognize what was down to luck and recognize what was down to skill. Uh, we often conflate the two things. And then, and, then, and then we can kind of build from there. So I think it's just, it's about literally stepping back from the decision-making process and recognize it for what it is, which is this 
you know, and and the set of imperfect processes that, that sometimes lead to fantastic success, sometimes fantastic failure. We can't change the algorithms in our head. So we need to think about the data that's going into those algorithms in order to get the outcomes that we want. Oh, I, lo- I love that answer. I, um, I mean, I, to pick up on a couple of those things, I think firstly, emotional states is so important, you know, you know, when it comes to decision making, and there's that, I'll never remember who said it, but I love this idea of, you know, don't make a big decision when you're stressed, depressed, or getting caressed. <laughs> this idea that, that, you know, your emotions heavily impact the kind of de- decisions that you make. And that, you know, if you are aware of those states, as you say, like, don't go shopping in the supermarket when you're hungry and tired, um, you know, you can probably avoid making some of the, 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 the bigger ones. And I think the other point, which I think is so true, is this idea of the role of luck and how, how significant a factor it is in life. And I love that thing. I'm sure you come across it. Um, I think it was Charlie Munger, this idea of, you know, the ovarian lottery. Oh, yeah, 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 right. Um, so this idea, you know, the idea that your sort of greatest predictor of success is, is you know, who, who you're born to because that sort of sets in motion so many of the things that, you know, result in a kind of quote-unquote successful life or successful career. Um, and I think that's so true that, most of us do not spend much time thinking about luck in our lives and how influential it is. Um, but it's really interesting because so, uh, yeah, if you think about if, if you think about the act of being born, right? That mm. that is a, there's a whole host of sort of serendipitous lucky moments, right? Which is firstly you have to exactly. have two two people that that come together, uh, and and then nature, mother nature has to take her course, and it's a you know which which will 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 it actually work out or not? Then so there's a whole host of things that have kind of happened, you know, and and nature is brilliant actually. You can see that, I, and I love this comparison. And Rory does this quite a bit. You know, compare nature with 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 human beings. There's a lot we can learn from that particular piece. So mother nature doesn't just mm. place one bet in terms of procreating the species, right? We have loads of uh, things out there to, 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 make, to make sure there's a fighting chance the species survives. And I think if we're born of Absolutely. luck, and we literally are, it's worth reflecting on that as we go through life, because it's not like we're gonna be born from luck and then magically everything follows a steady set of patterns. It really doesn't. And I think that mm. going back to you know, recognizing that we come, you know, we are, the mere fact that we exist on the planet is a is a coalition mm. of, of 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 luck and circumstance, and and it doesn't change from then on. No, I mean I, I agree completely. I mean that point you just mentioned as well as, you know, there's that that saying about you know the first generation creates the wealth, the second consolidates it, and the third loses it. And I think that's so true as well as kind of recognizing your own relative luck and and being aware of it so that you know you can't don't squander the opportunity. I suppose. And it's, but it's, you know, I, I think that's a really interesting one because it play it plays into a little bit of my 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 sort of human risk thinking around stuff, which is if you have if you can see the consequences of your actions, if you've experienced, so if you know how money was acquired, right? How 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 did you get rich, right? Mm-hmm. If you had to work to get it, then you're going to work quite hard to protect that. Whereas if you're a second or third generation where you've just inherited, you haven't seen any of that stuff, so that your your personal history doesn't best equip you to be able to think in the terms of, of, of protecting it because you just assume that that's the way that that was your start point that's where you began that was your privilege that you began with right. that particular piece and I think there's something interesting about personal experience and determining uh, you know how we how we look at the world and and how we behave in it because 
you know, we, we take the information that's available to us. So if you have never seen what it is like to grow up with no money, you're going to behave differently to somebody mm. that, that suffered either during the wartime or because their family generally had poverty. And I think, you know, if you look at someone like Marcus Rashford, Really interesting example. Mm. This is for, for, for non-UK listeners. This is a, a Premier League footballer who grew up in poverty, who's been doing some amazing things this year to basically to force the government's hand to get them to pay for uh, poorer families to to, to, to to have food, basically, in very simple terms. So putting food, literally mm -hmm. putting food on people's tables. And I think it's really interesting because mm -hmm. that is a really good example of his background and experience determining his worldview and his perspective. And I think he's done some you know, phenomenal things. And he is turning people who, who haven't had to experience any of those particular things just through sheer force of willpower. And there's a lovely example of sort of, you know, your background and your experiences de determining piece. So, so one, I think it's a great advert for diversity in every single sense, right? Which is why we need different opinions around the table. We make dumb decisions when we just take our own perspectives and we don't have other people, particularly where those are big societal or big kind of corporate decisions. So if we can have more views around the table, that's, that's super powerful. And we need to make sure that we're not just kind of making sure that the photo looks diverse. We need people genuinely different perspectives and the ability to express them. And one of the big human risk, um, if, if, if you like, countermeasures is, to my mind, is diversity and inclusion. And both of those things are equally important. You need the different perspectives around the table, but they need to be able to speak up, need to feel free to speak up. And I think that's a really mm -hmm. powerful force. It drives who we are and how we think about the world, you know, where we come from, what we've experienced. But it can also be really powerful if we if we coalesce and get lots of people around the table with different perspectives and viewpoints. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, and I guess on on a fundamental level, diversity kind of sp spreads risk, I suppose, because you've got rather than just one point of view, one person making the decisions, you've got a whole load of people involved. Um, and coming back to what you said earlier about the kind of top tips for for people kind of wanting to mitigate risk in their own lives, you talked about emotional states and talked a bit about um, luck, and we talked a bit about kind of reflection on on the year um, that's passed. And in my personal journey on this topic, another area that really fascinated me, which I know you know a lot about, um, is this kind of idea of checklists. I sort of read this fantastic book. Um, I think the name, the, the guy's name is Atul Gawande. Atul the, Gawande's the checklist, checklist manifesto. manifesto, yeah. Yeah, and he, for those that don't know, he was a, I think he's a sort of a, a surgeon in, in somewhere in the States who kind of introduced a lot of the philosophy of kind of pre-flight checklists that they use in aviation for kind of mitigating um, kind of, I guess, common errors that might lead to disaster. And I kind of brought those over to the world of, of surgery to sort of see if it could improve. Um, I think it was mostly around sort of infections post-operation, I think. Um, anyway, surprise, surprise, it, it had a massive impact. And now that's kind of more widespread practice or, or indeed probably in all kind of uh, operating theatres now around the world. And I wondered if, if that was something that, you know, you think is something people could bring into their own lives in terms of if you're going to make a big decision, like, I don't know, buying a house or who you're going to get married to or whatever it is, you know, is something like a simple checklist, a, a good way to mitigate risk? Uh, so yes and no. Right. So so on the one hand, uh, it, where you've got the sorts of activities he's talking about, you know, that is a prime example of an activity where you don't want human beings to get into the creativity game. 
right? You just want people to slavishly follow process because that's what's required in that situation. Same thing for aviation, same thing for food safety, nuclear power, all of those things. I don't want anybody deviating, right? Very, very tight. Do exactly what it says. Don't miss a single step. Don't change. Follow, follow the instructions to the letter, right? And no deviation. Okay, so that's situation one. In those circumstances, checklists are wonderful things because, well, we know what happens. We forget things. Right. And if you want to see an example of people forgetting, I saw this great thing. A friend of mine posted something on Facebook the other day where he's been out for dinner and he said the dinner and, and he, he was in an area where he, they hadn't been able to go out for dinner for ages, suddenly able to go out for dinner. Right. So he goes out to dinner and he said it was it was brilliant, but it was ruined by the waiter taking my order and not writing it down. And I don't know if you've ever been this thing. It's it's fascinating because I started to think about it and go, it is a bit disconcerting when you're somewhere. Fine, if it's just one or two things, it's fine. But if it's a whole table full of people placing an order, right, you sort of sit there and go, it's really, they're going to screw this up, right? I know that some, particularly if it's like, I mean, take something like pizza, right, or steak, or there's something where there's a bit of kind of customer input required as to how they want it cooked. Right. If you look at that sort of situation, you you know what's going on there. You're sort of going, the waiter or waitress is showboating. They're kind of going, look, I can remember all this stuff. And you go, I don't trust that you can remember. It causes you a, a certain amount of discombobulate. And if it arrives, or you, you're kind of you're not really impressed if it arrives. You're like, phew. And if it arrives with the wrong order, you're really, really irritated because they haven't they haven't written it down. Right. There's a good illustration of how pe- how we know that human beings inherently will forget things because we're not programmed to memorize all this long list and follow it slavishly. So good example of right, waiters and waitresses should write stuff down because it gives us a degree of confidence and certainty they're going to get it right mm-hmm. because we know that people forget stuff. So checklists really good in those particular sorts of circumstances. Very, very powerful. And, and you know, that can be brilliant in those circumstances. And I think what he's superbly done is go on, hold on a minute. The medical environment has the same dynamics as the airline safety industry. Not, not that you use the same tools, but the, the, the thing is the same, which is I need people to slavishly follow this list. And that's what we need. We need them to do everything. Right? No skipping of steps, no nothing, because that's how we save people's lives. And that's what we're in the business of doing. Ditto airlines, we get the plane in the sky safely, precisely because the engineer and the pre-flight and all those things have followed the processes slavishly. But there are other situations where that's entirely inappropriate. And or it or, or otherwise not entirely perfect. It's really difficult to do. So the moment you want an element of creativity, you want people to use their brains. And, and let's face it, in the modern world, if something is pre-programmable to a checklist type level, then in many respects, that's something you could give to a machine. Right. And we're seeing lots of me. If you want something that's just reliably slavishly following a list, there are probably machines that can start to do that. Not in all circumstances, but in a lot of them. So as we go on, technology gets more sophisticated. The machines are going to be doing the things where we need reliability, where we don't want tiredness, forgetfulness, laziness, all of those things to kick in. Right. So we want so so people were going to be doing the more creative stuff. And this, from a human risk perspective, I find fascinating because suddenly you're in the realms of the reason I've given this to a human being is because I need you to bring humanity to the exercise. I need you to do things that will bring the best emotional intelligence, responding to an environment, kind of reading the room, all those sorts of things. And so when I look at those particular pieces, the moment you try and put those down in a checklist, you get to a really interesting stage. And look at COVID as a good example. So what you've got with COVID is an attempt to codify the underlying behavioral risk that's there. So what we want people to do is we want people to do things that don't spread the disease, right? So wash their hands, wear masks, yada, yada, yada. 
And it's really interesting when you see people sort of dissecting the rules. And, and I, was, I was listening this morning, there was a phone in on the radio where it was kind of like phone in with your COVID question. And it's all stuff where it's people going, am I allowed to do this or that? And they've kind of got their own little specific situation. That's, and some of them you can go, no, you're just trying it on. And others, it's genuinely the rules haven't contemplated their situation. So perhaps, you know, it might be illegal, but maybe they should be allowed to do it. Or maybe actually in some circumstances, the rules have allowed them to do something that's patently stupid that wasn't intended. And so what we see there is a conflict between this beautifully black and white world that the rules kind of promote and the grayness of reality. And so codifying stuff can become really difficult in certain circumstances because COVID isn't sitting there going, I'm not going to get you because you complied with the law. Right. It's going to do its stuff regardless mm. of the situation. So there's mm. an example of a codification of the world that doesn't necessarily make sense. And if you've ever been sent by your mm. other half to go shopping and you've been given the shopping list of things to buy and it says something very specific, certain type of onions or certain type of right, mm. and you're clearly the supermarket. If you've ever had that freak out situation where you've gone. It says this, but they don't have that available. Is this an appropriate substitute? Right, And we've all had supermarket deliveries where the substitution has been, frankly, crackpot. Right? But if you put it, so, so yeah. it, it, as you wander around the supermarket, look at this list going, can I, can I get away with substituting this for that? Now, uh, it depends how much of a chef you are as to whether you know whether that's appropriate or not, how, how brave you're feeling that particular day. But there's an example of the real world doesn't always allow itself to be neatly codified. So the more you rely on codification and checklists and these processes, the more you've got to make sure to avoid human risk that the thing that you're trying to codify can be codified in that way. And so when I look at these things, I think very often it's, it's, it's super powerful or potentially super dangerous. And what we do when we have our kind of human risk toolkit is we don't necessarily think about where is it appropriate to deploy this and where isn't it? And techniques that work really well in predictable situations, uh, you know, don't necessarily work in unpredictable situations. And so we have to balance those two things out. And so a lot of my work with clients is really looking at this thing and saying, it's not about having a one size fits all for everything. So checklists, brilliant for certain things, terrible for others. And, and there's a gray area in between as ever, right? It's not, it's not so simple. There's a, here's a simple cutoff point. Because again, I would be codifying the world if I told you that. So I find it fascinating to look at it and say, what we need to do is be thinking about, okay, what is the underlying human risk that I'm trying to mitigate here, right? What's the, is it a risk of forgetfulness, right? Is it, at which, at which point mm. your, your, your checklist will look very different if it's, I need to tell you lots of detail about what to do because you might forget the detail or is it actually i just need to nudge you like you know putting the rubbish out doesn't require a detailed instruction list i just need i mean the word rubbish on its own might get there right medical procedures mm. maybe you really do need that and if you're dealing with electricity or something that's 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 you know potentially life threatening then maybe the specificity is really useful but we've all seen situations where you know if you buy a new gadget and look at the instruction manual if it's 500 pages, and very often these things are, right, because they produce them for, for 20 countries in one goes, you look at it and go, well, I'm not going to read this. And I genuinely, you know, I'm a guy, I tend not to read those things. So I'll read it if it's short, snappy, helpful, lots of pictures. So it's not something where you need that level of granularity and detail. And again, we have to be thinking about these things. So to say checklists are not useful is wrong. To say they're useful all the time is wrong. We need to balance those things. But what does it actually mean? And that's why I love that the checklist manifesto is great because it looks at those issues and says, this is how this can help. That is one tool that might be more reliable. As I say, a post-it note on your corner of your screen might be all it takes to remind you to do something else. 
uh, or you might need to have a detailed listening. It depends on the level of sophistication of your target audience. So if you're trying to influence other people, think about it from their perspective. If you're trying to influence yourself, that's when you have to really understand what's driving my behavior. Am I genuinely a forgetful person? Or is the reason I've not done that thing because I'm just trying to put it off. It's too unpleasant. It's too nasty. At which point a reminder isn't going to, or detailed checklist might not be what you need. Maybe you just need some kind of, maybe you need a commitment device where you've told, you know, you publicly tell someone else you're going to do it. Different behavioral tool to get the outcome. You have to look at the underlying drivers. And so checklists can be really useful. They can also actually be precisely the opposite. Yeah. Now, now I'm wondering if I should have created that checklist for selecting my future wife. Not. Well, see, I, and this is what I love. This is I'm a big fan of watching like t TV shows and comedy shows, and tell you quite a lot. So I love watching. It. So there is this great episode of, of Friends for those people that remember that that series, which is a bit of its time. But basically, Ross, one of the characters in that, creates a spreadsheet to decide who he's going to go out with. Right? He's got maybe it's maybe it's a word word document, right? But it's kind of pros and cons, right? And you can see, you know, you, you kind of know what's going to happen here, right? So he does all these things and then he prints it out and of course leaves it and he gets found. And, and the joke there is, of course, this is a highly inappropriate thing to be doing on any number of levels because one, you're trying to codify emotions but two, like, it, like it's just not an intelligent way of, of, of making a decision. That process. And three, it's really not the kind of thing that if you are going to go down that route that you want to be putting in, a, in electronic or printed forms where other people might find it, particularly not one of the people that features on the, on, on the form. So, you, yeah, you, you make a really good point, right, which is that we often don't use the right tools for the job. And if there's one lesson I learned from my dad as a kid when he was teaching me how to do sort of basic repair stuff is you need the right tools for the job, son. And, you know, trying to sort of loosen a screw with a hammer, which is always, if we only have a hammer, I took it, that's what we'll do. So I think the important thing here is not to just go checklist to the be all and end all, uh, but actually just to go, what am I trying to solve? And is this the best available tool for it? And if it is, great, use it. If not, as in the case of your spreadsheet, possibly worth thinking about alternative mechanisms. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Um, and speaking of lessons, um, it's always great fun to ask our guests uh, to recommend a, a favorite book um, and I think for anyone kind of wanting to know more about this topic what what would you kind of suggest would be a good good place to start book wise so I'll I'll answer the question seriously and then I'll and then I'll answer it sort of slightly obtusely so the the the, the serious answer is look I think there are, if you start to look at behavioral science as being something that you can use in the service of risk management right to try and stop bad outcomes and you read things in that context. There's a ton of books that you can read. So all of the Dan Ariely stuff, I think, is really interesting because that's driving towards, uh, you know, how we think and the processes that we go about decision making. So those bits I find, I mean, Kahneman is always the the, the, the standard go-to for me just in terms of understanding the, the basic processes. But if you want one really good behavioral science, uh, Making Evil by Julia Shaw is a fantastic book that looks at uh, you know, what, is, what does being evil mean? What drives that decision? And she's got a great line in the book where she says something like, am I taking you out of your comfort zone? Good, let's go further. And that's the, so it's dealing with some really Ooh. awful subjects about what, what makes people, but it's brilliant stuff. So not the most comfortable reading, but wow, is it insightful about why we do stuff. Quick synopsis of the book is basically saying the idea of evil is really interesting because we like to think that people, you know, there's a bunch of evil people out there as we see them in the movies. In reality, the world's a little bit more great and we're all capable of doing things that we probably wouldn't want to admit to. No, I, I oh, agree. Sorry. And then, the, and then the, flippant, the flippant part. one was, sorry, I, I said the, the flippant one was going to be read anything by Kafka. 
right? Because he he's talking about brain processes. That gives you a really clue, good clue as to the and, and and I love watching movies and reading books that that talk about human behavior, which they all do, right? Because by default we tend to write books. About. So Kafka for me is the kind of slightly flippant answer to this, the the question as well. No, brilliant. No, I think going back to the making evil thing very quickly, I think you're you're so right about that that. We're all capable of evil. It's just context dependent, right? Um, I mean, you look back at things like the Holocaust and uh, you know topics like that, where you, you think, how could people have behaved in this this way? Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that that sounds really interesting. And yeah, Kafka, brilliant as always. Um, and yeah, no, it just remains to say thank you so much for for your time today and uh, sharing all your wisdom with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us for this week's edition of the 42 Courses podcast. We'll be back soon with more interviews with some of the world's greatest minds. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at 42 Courses or check out our website, 42courses.com, for information on all the courses we offer. Have a great week.